Here's what I want to do today as we close out the book of Acts. For those of you brand new to all this stuff, um, the book of Acts is the history book of the New Testament in terms of the church. It talks about the birth of the church, uh, how we transition from the life of Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection, to the church being born and what the followers of Jesus actually did. And here, So here's what I want to do. I'm going to frame this up. Um, I want to talk about how ridiculous the Christmas story is. Like the idea that, that this baby born uh, in a manger could do all this. Uh, how the book of Acts really kind of shows just how ridiculous it is. How ridiculous it is to think that the church could spread in the context of the Roman Empire. And then hopefully kind of a so what. What does this really mean for, for you as, as you live your life in, in the real world? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to do that. Um, God, thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for showing us what your followers did, what you did through your followers. And I want to pray that through your word this morning, we would better appreciate Jesus, um, understand how you work in the world, and maybe be inspired um, by what role we could play as your story continues to unfold today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, this has been a really brief survey through a very important book, the book of Acts. And, and what I want to start off with is, is this nativity thing, because after all, it's Christmas time. Let's talk about, let's start the ridiculousness by the idea that this baby who was born, that we celebrate at Christmas, could somehow have a, have a global impact. So, <clears throat> at the time of Jesus' birth, Rome ruled the world. The Roman Empire ruled everything that was worth ruling. They ruled with an iron fist. And anyone opposed uh, to the government, anyone that tried to do anything about that rule or created disruptions or somehow um, set themselves against the ideals of Rome, they were crucified. Problem solved. Caesar was at the center of the Roman Empire with titles like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Son of God. That's the context of Jesus' birth. Now, within that vast and powerful empire, which was pretty much the known world, there was this insignificant tribe of people known as the Jews, and they were allowed to keep their land and their identity, sort of, as long as they didn't cause any problems for the Roman Empire. Every now and then this little rebellion would rise up from the Jewish people and, and Rome would just poof, throw a massive beat down and people were crucified and everything else and it all settled back to normal and that's the way it needed to stay. But this, this little tribe of people had these prophecies, which we know as the Old Testament, that predicted or prophesied that within or from this tribe of people there would be a child born and he would be the Messiah or the Savior. And he would bring salvation to the world. He would establish the kingdom of God. An eternal kingdom of God. This Messiah would establish it. 
And he would bring salvation to both the Jews and the Gentiles, or in other words, to all people. Now, this was highly unlikely with current Roman rule that someone could somehow establish another kingdom, especially through the Jews because they weren't much of a military threat or a numerical threat. But in Bethlehem, in the middle of nowhere, like nowhere important, far from Rome itself, this baby was born to these common people, a tradesman and his fiancée. And the baby's born in a barn and sleeps in a feeding trough. This baby's supposedly the son of God who will somehow bring salvation to his people. The Old Testament says he'd bring salvation to everybody. So the prophecies would say that this little baby born to a nobody family and nobody people would save the whole Roman Empire, the whole world, and establish a new kingdom. This is ridiculous. Like the idea that a baby born there could do that, it would be like a disabled girl being born in Mexico and somehow saying, this little girl is going to win the Heisman Trophy and break NFL rushing records. Right? That's just not very likely. That's what we find. The idea that this baby's going to be born into this Roman Empire, and, and it's just, it's a ridiculous story. So let me take a look at, at this map here, <clears throat> walk you through the implications of this. <clears throat> so you see the Roman Empire, everything in the yellowish kind of color, which is pretty much like the known functional world, uh, the world of significance at the time of Jesus. And, and down there, there's that star. Jerusalem didn't turn out very well, but you see that star in the lower right. That's Jerusalem, and up to the top, to the north there, would be the Sea of Galilee, which doesn't even really appear on that map. But I just starred off. Okay, that's, that's like Jew central in the Roman Empire. And within that little star, there's this prophecy, and this baby's born in Bethlehem. And, and Jesus would grow up. Now remember, this is important for, this, for Acts. There's no Twitter or Facebook. There's no planes, trains, automobiles. There's no phone lines. There's nothing that would like spread a movement. But there's this prophecy that this baby's going to be born. And he's born there. In the, and so let's talk about this baby Jesus. By the time he's 30, he starts his ministry. Three and a half year ministry. Jesus is only doing his thing for three and a half years in the context of the Roman Empire. He never, he never leaves that star. Next slide with the picture. That's the Sea of Galilee up top there, okay? That's like, let's just say that's four to six miles of, of, of land around the Sea of Galilee. During Jesus' three and a half years, that's where he spends 70% of his time. So not only is he in this star, he's in like that little area right there. 70% of his time. The time of his death, there are 120 people who believe that he rose again. 120 people. Let's say that's like the size of this room. That's it. Jesus lives. There were a lot of crowds around because of his miracles when he was alive, and then he dies, and 120 people in the context of that vast Roman Empire, 120 people, no phones, no Twitter, no Facebook, 
No Instagram. Nothing to say. Not, not, nothing to start a movement. 120 people at the beginning of the book of Acts. So Acts begins with a group the size of this room who believed the kingdom of God had come through Jesus. And they believed that the prophecies about this baby and that they would say that somehow he changes the world and brings salvation to the entire world. But right now at the beginning of Acts with this room, it doesn't look good. Like the odds are not in favor of the ragtag 120 believers to change the whole Roman Empire at the beginning of the book of Acts. That's where we start off. Now before we start into Acts, and I'm going to do like an overview and talk about how this all fits together. So the first part of this is kind of a history lesson. But I want to call your attention to a couple of obscure teachings from Jesus in the book of Matthew. He's talking about the kingdom of God and he says this. This is Matthew 13, 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is just this itty-bitty, real small seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed through about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So Jesus starts to reframe expectations of people with parables like this. When people thought about the kingdom of God back in Jesus' day, they generally thought about geography. They thought about political power and influence. They pictured a Messiah riding into Rome and overthrowing the empire to establish God's kingdom, make everything right and new. Jesus, on the other hand, is somehow saying that God's kingdom is something that can be small, like a small seed or a small chemical reaction like that of yeast And it starts to spread and will ultimately become something unstoppable. So people are thinking military, power, boom. And Jesus says, no, think small and slow, but eventually unstoppable. Now, with that in mind for the kingdom of God, let's start with the book of Acts. Jesus is with his disciples face to face one last time. He's risen from the dead. There are about 120 people, room this size, that actually believe this. Here's the account. Acts chapter 1. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So this is a good question. We're waiting. We got these prophecies that say you are going to establish an eternal kingdom. Are you going to march right into Rome And do that now? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. You will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will tell people what you know to be true about me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, let's go back to the map real quick. Context. They're down in that little star. And, 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 and 120 people pretend I'm Jesus and somebody pipes up. Uh, Gene, being the Bible scholar that he is, says, So, are you going to go now and establish God's kingdom? Jesus' last miracle was to raise Lazarus from the dead who'd been dead for four days. So there's probably a lot of confidence when a military general can raise his troops from the dead. Like, you could get this done. So they ask him that and Jesus says, don't worry about it. But you will be my witnesses in this star. And then beyond this star. And then all the way to Rome and to the ends of the earth. See how ridiculous that is to stand before a, a room this size with no phones and no Twitter and no trains and say, you are going to bring it to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up uh, before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go. So this frames nicely the book of Acts and I think frames our life. They want to know when God is going to bring his kingdom and Jesus says, don't worry about the, how this whole thing wraps up. You though... Go and be a witness to what you know to be true about God. And you know, as you go, and, and, and you take it, and you spread it. And so the book of Acts is the account of those 120 believers taking that and spreading that. And we're going to see this. So I'm going to one more here. This is Luke 17. Before we do a quick overview of, of how Acts tells that story. Luke 17, Jesus says this. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Now, this is a weird teaching. Because they're expecting like a new nation for him. He says, oh, you're not going to see it. No one's going to say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst or within you. So what Jesus seems to be saying is, if you're looking for the kingdom of God, it's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's something that comes from within you. Apparently God wasn't interested, at least at that time, with establishing a geographical identity. He was bringing a way of life. So the book of Acts starts with a question about the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what frames the book for the readers. And Jesus redefines things around being a witness to the ways of God. And he says that would spread throughout the world. So what we see is the promise in chapter 1 from Jesus. Quick overview of Acts. Chapter 1, Jesus says, you, 120 people, are going to be witnesses 
starting with that star and going to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, they're standing in Jerusalem. There are thousands of people there for the Feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit does shower down upon them, and and these 120 people start speaking in different languages. Very miraculous moment. Thousands of Jews now believe because of that. Thousands of Jews give their life to following Jesus there in Jerusalem. And Acts 2 through 7 teaches about how it spreads throughout Jerusalem. Then Acts 8 through 10, we see it going beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Peter goes to Cornelius as far as the Mediterranean Sea and takes the Jesus movement there. Philip finds an Ethiopian who accepts and returns home to follow Jesus there. So the Jesus lifestyle begins to spread past just Judaism and into Gentile pagan territory, just like Jesus had said. Now Paul sails across the Mediterranean Sea, deep into the Roman Empire, to places that would have never even heard of Jesus. So if we go back to the map real quick. The Mediterranean Sea, what we now call it, is there to the left of Jerusalem and that. Paul takes it into Athens and beyond as he works his way toward Rome there in the, in the boot. So, so you see through the book of Acts, just historical overview, how the church, just like Jesus said, begins to spread through these 120 people. Now I want to move to the last chapter of Acts, the last two chapters of Acts, and take a few minutes to talk that through and then deal with the overall implications of the book for our life. In Acts 21, Paul is arrested, so he's doing this church work, and there are plenty of people for some different reasons. Some people are upset because converting people to Jesus is really hurting the local economy um, because they like to sell idols, and they're not selling as many with Jesus converting people to Jesus. Some Jews are upset because it's a threat to Judaism. So Paul gets arrested. He's a Roman citizen, and he actually wants to make it to Rome to stand before Caesar and give an appeal. So he wants to appeal to Caesar. Seems like he wants to share his faith in person with Caesar himself. So he ends up throughout the rest of the book of Acts appearing before kings and officials, many of whom are very intrigued with Jesus and with Paul. By Acts 27, next to last chapter, this is where Acts gets a little weird compared to what we might think. Paul is being transported by Roman guard. He's under arrest. They're headed toward Rome. Their ship has been in trouble because of the weather. It says this, When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land. They saw a bay with a sandy beach. There they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck first, or fast, and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So the ship's breaking apart. 
The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming and escaping. But the centurion, the leader of the soldiers, wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out that plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first to get the land. And the rest were to get on planks or other pieces that were, you know, debris floating from the ship. And so everyone in this way uh, reached land safely. So they end up on this island, and Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Now God spares his life, nothing happens to him, it's miraculous. But it's like one hassle after another. And I think this is a really important part of the book of Acts because it reminds me that this Jesus thing isn't supposed to be easy and quick. Paul's arrested. Paul's in prison for years. Even the ship he's carried on breaks apart. It's like he can't get a break and he's doing the work of Jesus better than anyone else. He's bitten by snakes and hassled by crowds and beaten down physically and emotionally. This Jesus thing can be difficult. This life thing can be difficult. And this is, this is just important for me because you know, sometimes we, we hear messages of, man, just, just think positive. Pray and read your Bible and think positive thoughts and, and, and everything's just going to fall into place by your positivity. I'm all for optimism, but sometimes life can be really hard. And I look at Scripture, and and this is the reason that I trust Scripture. Because if Scripture said things like that, like if the overall message is just believe in Jesus and everything works out great, that doesn't match the life that I know. I mean, my life is pretty good. But there's still plenty of issues that we all have to overcome, and we can be in the center of God's will, and it still can be problematic. But that's what Acts tells us. Seems to say even expect it. In fact, when, when one of Paul's uh, first mentors was told by God, I want you to go tell him how much he's going to have to suffer for me. Now, Paul finally ends up in Rome. He's awaiting a hearing from Caesar himself. Could come any day, it may never come. He's on a kind of house arrest with access to friends and limited freedoms in Rome. So the gospel, the kingdom of God, has made it now all the way to Rome. Here's the end of the book of Acts. 28, verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. This is a crowd of people that want to hear more about what Paul is teaching. Came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying, and he witnessed... Just like Jesus had told them to. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament of the Bible. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said. Others would not believe. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 28. Therefore, He's talking to the the people who would not accept his message. He says, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They're going to listen. It says, this is the, the closing of the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
So there's Paul in Rome. There's Paul spreading the Jesus movement into the heart of the Roman Empire. Some are convinced and others aren't. A few hundred years later, that crazy new way of looking at the world would become the official faith of the Roman Empire. Maybe that was a good thing, maybe not. But from the start of the book of Acts, Jesus looks at 120 people, a room this size, and he says, I'm going to bring my kingdom through you. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book of Acts, there's Paul. The guy who, when Jesus spoke those words, was the biggest Jesus hater on the planet. And he's the one who spread that movement deep into the heart of the Roman Empire. So I have two takeaways for you this morning, two so what's. First, as you read the book of Acts, and I hope you read it, I hope you become a student of the book of Acts, and I hope you can see the nature of God through the book of Acts. Because Jesus describes God at work. He points to things that can be easily overlooked and says that those are the things that have great significance, have earth-shaking value. It's a mustard seed. No, it's the biggest tree in the forest. It's 60 pounds of dough versus a pinch of yeast. But the yeast is going to change the whole thing. It's 120 people, but that's a crowd big enough to change the whole world. Here's why that matters to me. You can never tell what God is doing or where he is working. Give him the smallest thing to work with, even when it looks like there is zero hope. Give him the smallest thing. The smallest bit of obedience. The smallest bit of faith. And he can do the impossible. So the marriage that's almost dead. The finances that are a wreck. The kid that just won't get his or her life turned around. The smallest thing. And God can do anything. Next thing is, you've heard me say this a few times, God is slow. God is so slow compared to what he wants. Think about the Acts chapter 1. The disciples were gathered around Jesus. He was ready to leave and they said, is now the time? Are you going to do it now? We're ready for it now. Jesus says, no. It's going to be slow. It's going to be through you. But I'm going to get it done. And when we look for God's activity in life, here's the thing. It may never end up looking like what we expected. It's probably going to be better, but I can promise that it's more than likely going to be slow. The timing's not going to be your timing. It's not going to look like what you want. But when we trust and when we walk in obedience, God is going to continue on through us. That's the message through the book of Acts, to do the unthinkable. If we keep grinding and stay committed... To following Jesus. Now here's where I'm going to land the plane. The book of Acts ends weird. It's Paul waiting. Does he get to Caesar? We don't know. Is Caesar impacted by Jesus? We don't know. Apparently it wasn't important to Luke, the author of the book. What was important for us 
was that we saw what Jesus began in 120 unskilled newbie followers and how it continued on until the kingdom of God had been spread through the entire Roman Empire. That baby born 2,000 years ago did exactly what the prophecies predicted. He brought salvation to Jews and Gentiles and everybody. The book of Acts doesn't really give us closure, and I think that's because in many ways it's still being written. God is still bringing his kingdom. You, me, Polaris, every other church, every other follower of Jesus, we need to decide whether or not Acts ended in chapter 28 or if it's still going on through us. It's really our story. That baby came and lived and dies and rose and commissioned followers to bear witness to the kingdom of God and you and I have a part in that story. Whenever we help someone take a step toward Jesus, whenever we do something bold for God, even if it's taking a first step toward Him ourselves, we continue on the story that God began in Acts. And I hope that you build your life around that story. I hope you decide, I am going to continue what God began in the book of Acts. Remember how it started? It started... Uh, Luke writes, I'm going, in my former book, the Gospel of Luke, I told you all that Jesus began to do. And I think through the book of Acts, he implies, and now Jesus continues. And he continues through you, and he continues through me, if we're willing to take steps of obedience and trust. All right, here's how we're going to end today. I can't think of a better way to end a study through the book of Acts than by taking communion together. In the book of Acts, it's a rhythm. The believers would go out in the world and they would do bold things for God and they would help people take steps closer to Jesus and they would take steps closer and then they would come together and they would take communion. And if you're brand new to all this, communion is, is, a, is a remembrance of, of a ritual that Jesus gave to his followers. The night before he was crucified, he got together with his disciples, his closest disciples, and he said, I want you to take bread and eat bread together. And remember the body, my body that I'm giving on the cross for you. And I want you to drink juice or wine together. And through that, remember the blood that I'm shedding on the cross for forgiveness and the new promise of forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that when believers have gotten together for the past 2,000 years, we have this in common. We get together from all walks of life and we eat at God's table by taking communion. So if you believe all that and want to join, now's your time. Just um, when the tray's passed, grab a cup and you can either um, take it and, and drink it immediately and put it back in the tray or, or you can hold on to it um, and when you're ready, drink it and put it in, the, um, in the, the slot in the pew in front of you. So take some bread as it's passed, take a cup and, um, and we'll take communion together and if this isn't for you, then just help us by passing the tray down the row. Let's pray. <coughs> God, thank you, for, um, thank you for using us to do your work. Um, we stand amazed at this baby that changed everything, at, at how ridiculous and unlikely it was. And, and you chose to do something uh, that nobody could have predicted and nobody could have seen. Even people who thought they knew didn't get it, but you did it, and you did it your way, and it was perfect. And it shaped the world. And thank you for inviting us to be a part of that. And right now we gather around your table in awe of who you are and what you did. And we celebrate together with all your people. 
at your table. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.